This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. The Apollinarian Controversy. First, Apollinarius himself. Those are his dates, 315 to 392. Apollinarius came from a very devout an Orthodox family. His father, Apollinarius the Elder, was a presbyter in Laodicea. Uh, and in 346, the father and the son, Apollinarius Senior and Junior, welcomed Athanasius into their home as he was coming back from exile. So they had a very close association with Athanasius and with Orthodoxy, as represented by Athanasius. Well, this was a time in 346 when the Emperor of the East had strong Arian tendencies. And this act of welcoming, welcoming back Athanasius got... Apollinarius in trouble. Both the, the bishop of Laodicea was an Arian and he excommunicated both the father and the son as a result of their association with Athanasius. Well, through the, all the ups and downs, different emperors, some pro-Arian, some less so, things go better for young Apollinarius, and he is made bishop of Laodicea in 360 A.D. Yep, well, see, when there was an Arian in charge, the Arians excommunicate the Nicaeans. But when the Nicaean emperor comes back, these excommunicated folks are welcomed back into their places. So, Apollinarius then becomes Bishop of Laodicea, a prominent person. But in 363, the emperor, Jovian, requires all of his bishops to submit a doctrinal statement to him. And Apollinarius writes a rather detailed view of, of his uh, understanding of Christianity, of his doctrinal beliefs. Jovian requires the bishops to provide a doctrinal statement. And one can see in this early doctrinal statement seeds of what came to be known later as heresy. But this was not immediately perceived because, first of all, it was rather a subtle departure from orthodoxy, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, 
but also because Apollinarius was so associated with Athanasius, a pillar of orthodoxy. So it took some time before the orthodox people began to, to suspect Apollinarius of having an unorthodox view. Apollinaris was first censored by the Bishop of Rome in 377 A.D. That is Damasus I. 377 A.D. Apollinaris is censored for his views. Not excommunicated, but censored. In 379, there is another council at Antioch. And they too are concerned about what they think is the direction of Apollinaris's thought. And the final condemnation comes at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Now the funny bit about his condemnation at Constantinople is the fact that he is not mentioned by name although his ideas are condemned. So, the church eventually does reject the views of Apollinarius. It goes on for a while. He does have followers after his death, and they still perpetuate his distinctive views, which I will explain in just a moment. Uh, but finally, in 425 A.D., those who continued to uphold his views finally reconciled officially with the, the, the church and re repudiated their Apollinarian views. 425. So there is finally, even though there's sort of a departure for a while between Orthodoxy and Apollinarius, by 425 his followers reconcile with the church eventually. That's a, the Council of, uh, what did I say, Antioch. There was a council at Rome council at Antioch, then a council at Constantinople, at which Apollinaris was, uh, his views were condemned. No, he seems to have survived in Laodicea. Uh, in fact, I could not find any indication that he had been actually banished. Uh, partly, again, the two reasons I think that he was able to maintain his hold is because, first of all, of, of the very the subtleness of his view. It took people, people had to really look hard and think hard about it. And you're going to find it perhaps a little difficult. To, and you may ask yourself, what's heretical about that? I'll, I'll try to explain that when we get to it. But, uh, so there's a certain subtlety to his, his heresy. And then the other thing is, again, his association with such a, such a, a pillar of orthodoxy as Athanasius. So he was able to maintain his his bishopric, it seems, for until his death. Antioch is three seventy nine, and Constantinople is three eighty one. And the earlier one, the, the the council at Rome was three seventy seven. It appears that he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. What is Apollinarianism? Apollinarius had been a very strong opponent of Arianism 
And one would expect that of someone who was a close friend of Athanasius. Furthermore, Apollinaris was a strong upholder of homoousios, that the father and the son are of the exact same essence. So, he's a good guy in many respects. But in his zeal for the true deity of Christ, he seems to have fallen into the error of denying Christ's humanity. He is so strong on wanting to stress the divinity, the deity of Christ, that he ends up minimizing the humanity of Christ. And we sometimes, I suppose, at least when I think about these things initially, it seems like if you're going to make a mistake, that's the better way to make it, uh, to stress his divinity. But the fact of the matter is, is that to in any way minimize his humanity has serious theological complications. And it leads to heresy, that's right. That's one of the charges made against him. That's right. Okay, Apollinarius bought into his view of man, the view of man as a trichotomy. That is to say that man is made up of mind, well, let me put it this way, body, soul, and spirit. There are three parts to man. Body, soul, and spirit. Now, he said that Jesus had a human body. He did not deny that aspect of Christ's humanity. Nor did he deny that Christ had a soul, a human soul. But it's the third part that got Apollinaris in trouble because he denied that Jesus had a human spirit. So he buys into man as made up of three parts. Body, soul, and spirit. The body and soul, he says, are human, entirely human, but the spirit, he says, of Jesus was not human, but divine. Now, what he means by spirit is the mind, the rational faculties, as well as the will. So when you talk about the spirit, you're talking about the mind and the will. Apollinaris says that instead of a human spirit, a human mind, and a human will, instead of that, Jesus had the divine logos. Instead of a human spirit, he had the divine logos. Human body, human soul, but a divine logos instead of a human spirit. Now what he's concerned about here is to maintain that Christ never sinned. He's trying to preserve that fundamental idea that Christ never sinned. 
And so he preserves, he maintains the full deity of Christ's mind and his will, or in other words, his spirit. That's where the divine logos took control. So the moral center of Jesus was purely divine. And therefore he could never sin. And therefore salvation was possible. Because he was, he was a perfect man and never sinned. So the, the concern that seems to motivate Apollinaris is to maintain this idea that Jesus never sinned. And the only way he could think of to maintain that was to claim that the moral center of Jesus, what he called the Spirit, was not fully human, but really a, the divine logos in the, in the human body. Comment? Soul is normally associated with the emotions. No. Yes, but he, he, the reason, though, that he could not sin is because of this these divine. The moral center of Jesus was divine, and the divine one does not sin, cannot sin. So, in sum, Apollinaris affirmed the deity of Christ, but he denied the full humanity of Christ. On exam, if I ask you what did an Apollinaris believe, that's the basic idea. He affirmed the full deity of Christ, but he denied the full humanity of Christ. Now, to be sure, he did affirm the humanity of Christ's body and of his soul. But that crucial part, the moral center, was divine. Now, criticisms uh, that began to emerge as people began to look clearly. I mean, one can understand the logic behind uh, Apollinaris and even understand the motivation for his particular formulation. But it becomes pretty clear that if you take his view where Christ is not fully human, that you end up with a descetic something approaching a more descetic Christ, one that is not fully human. It only appears to be fully human, but is not really. So you have that heresy subtly re-emerging. Furthermore, his view ultimately denies a full incarnation. If Christ does not, if the second person of the Trinity does not become fully man, then you don't have a full-fledged incarnation. And you're talking serious theological error at this point. If Christ is not fully man, then how can he be the representative of man? How can he be the redeemer of men? Do you see how crucial this is? If he is not fully man, then how can he be the redeemer of men? Redeem those with whom he has no connection. So, to be a full redeemer of men, Christ must also be fully man. 
others buy into the trichotomy category? Uh, various people have, down, orthodox people as well as, as less orthodox folk. Yeah, this, this probably comes from Plato. And, you know, as you already have talked about, there is clear infiltration, a borrowing of, of some Greek categories from time to time to help articulate ideas. And sometimes people buy into to more than just uh, categories. Well, at Constantinople, as a result of the efforts, a little bit of Athanasius, but more of the Cappadocian fathers who, who began to see the error in Apollinaris, and they brought that to the fore at Constantinople, and as a result, Apollinaris' view, views were uh, rejected. But that did not solve all of the problems Still, the relationship, all Constantinople did was to say that this view is wrong. It did not take the additional step of trying to explain how it was that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It just said that it was the case, but they, couldn't, they didn't uh, go ahead and try to explain it. They found it very difficult. So... This controversy is important in part because it pushes the question further and, and, and sort of compels the church to begin thinking more uh, deeply about the question of how do we understand the relationship within the one Christ of his humanity and his divinity. And it's because of the Apollinarian controversy that gives rise to further controversies. And thus, as a result of those controversies, a clearer understanding of the relationship of the divine and the human. Okay, let's uh, try to deal with Nestorius in our next 45 minutes or so. If you thought that Nicaea was uh, interesting and all the things that led to that. Wait till we get to uh, the Council of Ephesus which dealt with Nestorius. Nestorian controversy. A. Nestorius. Originally a presbyter in Antioch who later became the bishop patriarch of Constantinople in 428. Nestorius is a product of the Antiochian school of thought where the tendency is to stress Christ's humanity. It's in some ways the opposite. Antioch in 428. That's okay. Am I going too fast? I'm hyper. I don't know why that's the case. Okay, I'll talk a little slower. <laughs> Nestorius was a bishop. <laughs> In 428, he became the bishop of Constantinople. Constantinople. 
Bishop of Constantinople. He was earlier a presbyter in Antioch. Did I confuse you on that? Okay, let's let's stop. Let's just get rid of everything you've written on this story. Let's just start from scratch. Earlier, Nestorius had been a presbyter in Antioch. Okay, then he had a transfer to Constantinople, where he became bishop in 428. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. Uh, he also is generally a follower of the Antiochian school, which tends to stress Christ's humanity. Nestorius seems to have been a person of great integrity, great piety, and he was a zealot for orthodoxy, sometimes too zealous. When he became the patriarch of Constantinople in 428 A.D., he gave his inaugural sermon, and this is part of it. Speaking now to the emperor who was there, Theodosius II, Nestorius writes, Give me, O emperor, the earth purified of heretics, and I will give you heaven. Help me to fight the heretics, and I will help you to fight the Persians. Nestorius was a zealot. He wanted to get rid of all the heretics. And as a result, he was rather harsh in his persecution, particularly of Arians. And he encouraged the emperor to also persecute Arians. But then Nestorius himself got into a little bit of trouble. Not long after he became the bishop, the patriarchal bishop of Constantinople, he found himself in the middle of a controversy. And the controversy centered on Nestorius's opposition to the term Theotokos, T-H-E-O-T-O-K-O-S. And that is a term that means the bearer of God. Or one could even translate it more loosely, the mother of God. And Nestorius felt it was inappropriate, it was wrong to apply this term, Theotokos, to Mary. Now, this was not the first time this term had ever emerged in the history of the church. Before him, Theodore of Mopsustia, I'll let you look up there and see how to spell that. He opposed this term when applied to Mary. In other words, he did not believe that Mary was the mother of God. He thought that was the wrong kind of language to use in reference to Mary. And then my next point is, is that this is not the first time people had used this term. It had uh, been used by Theodore of Mopsustia, and he applied this term uh, 
he employed this term theotokos. People like Athanasius had from time to time used it, as had Basil the Great, one of the Cappadocians. And it became affiliated, attached to, to Mary in particular, and it probably contributed to the growing uh, status of Mary in the early church to think of her as the mother of God. But others, even before Nestorius, had opposed this language. I mentioned Theodore Mopsustia before, and he, like Nestorius, did not like this term. He made reference to it, but mostly in opposition to this term. Theodore had written before Nestorius this, Mary bore Jesus, not the Logos, for the Logos was and continues to be omnipresent, though he dwelt in Jesus in a special manner. Therefore, says Theodore, Mary is, strictly speaking, the mother of Christ, not the mother of God. Properly speaking, she gave birth to a man, in whom the union with the Logos had begun, but was still incomplete. Let me go on. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, the term Theotokos was obviously somewhat bold, but it was intended to lay stress on the in a dissoluble union of the divine and the human natures in Christ. It was a term meant to emphasize the union of the divine and the human in Christ. But Theodore and his disciple Nestorius found grave difficulty with a word like this because to them it suggested that a creature had given birth to the Creator. To say that Mary was the mother of God. It seemed to them that it was, it was blasphemous to say that the eternal God took His beginning from a mortal. So, when Nestorius becomes the patriarchal bishop in Constantinople, there is a controversy already going on. Some folks want to use this term because they want to stress the union of humanity and divinity in Christ. Others find it very disturbing to talk about uh, a creature giving birth to the Creator. That just didn't seem right to those. So, the controversy was already moving along. Now, there were some in this controversy in Constantinople who were saying Mary was Theotokos. Mary was the mother of God. Others didn't like that, and so they said Mary is Anthropotokos. That is, the mother of of man, a mother of a man. 
Now, given these two extremes, if you will, Nestorius proposed another term, a term of compromise. He preferred the term Christokos, Christotokos, that is, that Mary was the mother of Christ. In this, of course, he followed Theodore of Mopsustia. But by taking this compromise terminology, he explicitly rejected this term, Theotokos. Listen to one of his first sermons after he became the bishop. Not the whole sermon, but just a bit of it. You ask, he says, whether Mary may be called the mother of God. Has God then a mother? If so, paganism is itself is excusable in assigning mothers to its gods. But then Paul is a liar, for he said of the deity of Christ that it was without father, without mother, and without descent, citing Hebrews 7. No, my dear sir, Mary did not give birth to God. The creature did not give birth to the uncreated creator, but the man who is the instrument of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit conceived not the Logos, but formed for him out of a virgin a temple which he might inhabit. The incarnate God did not not die, but quickened him in whom he was made flesh. This garment which he used, I honor on account of the God which was covered inside and inseparable. I separate the natures, but I unite the worship. He who was formed in the womb of Mary was not himself God, but God clothed, but God clothed himself with humanity. And on account of him who clothed him, he who was clothed is also called God. Particularly that latter part is what created a stir in Constantinople when he says that he who was formed in the womb of Mary was not God, but was a man. Nestorianism. C. What I'm doing is I'm setting up the controversy. What's at stake? And it's from this particular word, Theotokos, that created a real big stir. In some ways, Theotokos became a key word for those of the Orthodox group, just as the word homoousios had been a key word in the Arian controversy. To reject Theotokos, that is, to to the Orthodox, to do what Nestorius did, to reject the term Theotokos, it meant a rejection of the true union of the human and divine natures of Christ in one man. I'll say that again so you can write it down, because it's very important. To reject this term, Theotokos, was in essence to reject the true union of the divine and the human natures of Christ in one person. 
That's what it meant in the controversy, at least. To reject this was to reject the idea that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. Now, in Nestorius' view, we can see, first of all, that the divine Logos does not truly become man. And we notice fur further that the two natures of Christ end up being something more akin to two personalities. We see in Nestorius' view that the two natures in effect become two personalities. And then it's noteworthy when Nestorius noted that, that uh, the person of Jesus, the man, is really only a temple in which the divine Logos dwells. Nestorius talks about Jesus the man as merely being a habitation, a dwelling place, a temple for the divine Logos. And so there is no stress on the union, the full integration of the divine and human sides of Christ. The bottom line, when you talk about the Nestorian view, it's that the two natures of Christ are not united into a single person. The bottom line for the Nestorian view is that the two natures, when I say the two natures, I'm talking about the divine and human nature of Christ, are not united in a single personality. Of course, from Nestorius' viewpoint, he felt that Mary, as a human being, could never be the mother of God. The most that she could be is the mother of a human being, the man, Jesus. And to speak of Mary as the mother of God for Nestorius was heresy. And so he refused to acknowledge that Mary was Theotokos. This provoked great opposition. And it provoked opposition in particular from this man, Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril of Alexandria. He was the patriarchal bishop of that city. Now the story gets interesting. Because Cyril, besides being very bright, very energetic, was also very unscrupulous. And here we have another example of a man who upholds orthodoxy by unscrupulous means. He locked horns with Nestorius. And it's generally conceded not only because of theological differences, but because of politics. It seems that Cyril, by opposing Nestorius, was making a play to gain more uh, to gain more power over Constantinople, 
He wanted out the city of Alexandria to be have a higher influence, a greater influence than Constantinople. So there's a there's a political, personal dimension to this. Most scholars agree. Philip Schaff says of Cyril, in him, Cyril, we have striking proof that the value of a doctrine cannot always be judged by the personal worth of its representatives. God uses for His purposes all sorts of instruments, good, bad, and indifferent. I like that. Well, Cyril decides he's going to lock horns with Nestorius, and he does everything he can to oppose him. He writes letters to the emperor. He writes letters to the emperor's wife. He writes letters to the emperor's sister. That's why I mention these names. Emperor Theodosius gets a letter from Cyril. So does the empress Eudokia and his sister Pulcheria. I mean, this man is a born lobbyist. Cyril played hardball. He also lobbied and gained the support of Celestine, the Bishop of Rome. Celestine, the Bishop of Rome. And he persuaded the Bishop of Rome to call a council. And they did in 430 AD. And as everyone expected, Nestorius was condemned at this church council in Rome in 430 AD. In 430 AD, the council condemned him and they gave him 10 days to recant. Nestorius refused. So Cyril responds by writing a book entitled Twelve Anathemas directed against Nestorius. Now Nestorius was a strong personality in his own right and he fought back. He wrote a book entitled Twelve Counter Anathemas. I'll show you so he rejects Cyril. Well, the controversy is slinging, mudslinging back and forth. Two major centers of Christendom, Alexandria and uh, Constantinople. So, the matter gets so heated that there is only one way, really, to resolve the problem. Call an ecumenical church council at Ephesus, 431 A.D. I'll mention John a little bit later. James, yes. What was the uh, provisional council um, called by Bishop of Rome? Just a, it was a small church council at Rome, 430 A.D. It wasn't called anything in particular. It's, it's a minor one. It's just the first official condemnation by a significant church of Nestorius. It was, I mean, it was a foregone conclusion. Celestine uh, and Cyril got together and said, let's, let's burn this guy. And they did. So now we come to what is hoped to be a resolution to the battle between Cyril and Nestorius. So they meet at Ephesus in 431 A.D. Are you buckled? This is, this is wild. This is the third ecumenical council. And the moral character of this council is very, very low. One scholar writes of the Council of Ephesus, nowhere is Christianity less attractive 
It is, in general, a fierce collision of two rival factions, neither of which would yield. The degeneracy in each party is, is very clear. They use every means of, hate, of haste, maneuvers, influence, bribery to crush his adversary. And so on. Both sides. Phase one of the Council of Ephesus. Phase one. Nestorius arrives first. He has with him two things. Sixteen bishops and an armed guard. Nestorius thought he came prepared. Now, the emperor at this time was generally predisposed to favor Nestorius. But the majority of the people in the town were against Nestorius. So the emperor deemed it wise to simply send representatives. So the emperor did not come. First Nestorius arrives and then Cyril comes. Cyril brings with him 50 bishops. And further, Cyril has the support of the bishop of Ephesus and his associates, 52 bishops. So Cyril has the support of Memnon, bishop of Ephesus, and he brings with him 52 bishops. There are two other bishops who come from Rome, and they too support Cyril. The point is, most of the bishops are supporting Cyril. Well over a hundred. Now, Sir, uh, Nestorius also had some support from the bishop of Antioch. Bishop John of Antioch. I would mentioned him up here. And Bishop John of Antioch was on his way to Ephesus with his... 42 bishops in tow in support of Nestorius. But there was a slight problem. Bishop John and his 42 bishops were late. They didn't get there in time. Cyril seized the opportunity and proceeded to begin without Bishop John and his 42 bishops of Antioch. And Cyril, with his support from Memnon, ran the council of Ephesus. Despite a number of protests, not the least of whom came from Nestorius. Three times they issued a decree demanding that Nestorius officially appear. Without his support, he refused three times. And so what we have in phase one is a council that is overwhelmingly dominated by the supporters of Cyril of Alexandria. So, what do you think happened? Well, the result was is that Nestorius was declared a notorious her heretic and deposed from his office. All of this in one day. One day. Listen to 
the condemnation issued by the first day, the one day of the Council of Ephesus. Quote, Whosoever does not anathematize Nestorius, let him be anathema. The true faith anathematizes him. The Holy Council anathematizes him. Whosoever holds fellowship with Nestorius, let him be anathema. We all anathematize the doctrines of Nestorius. We all anathematize Nestorius and his followers and his ungodly faith and his ungodly doctrine. We all anathematize Nestorius. You get the feeling that, that Cyril doesn't like Nestorius? Well, the next day, after Nestorius has been condemned, they send word and say, guess what, Nestorius? You're out as bishop of Constantinople. He, of course, protested and wrote a letter to the emperor. A lot of good it was doing. Well, that's phase one. But the story is not over. There is a phase two. A few days later, Bishop John of Antioch and his 42 bishops who support Nestorius show up. So what do you think they do? John and Nestorius get together and hold their own council of Ephesus. And they don't invite Cyril. And guess what they conclude? They unanimously declare Cyril and Memnon notorious heretics. They are deposed and uh, from their bishoprics. And further, in phase two, Cyril and... Uh, John excommunicate all bishops who participated in phase one unless they would anathematize Cyril. This is a, a, a third ecumenical church council now. It's still not over. There's still a phase three. Well, Cyril responded to phase two by convening yet a third time. This is phase three. Cyril says, I'll one-up you. And I'll convene a third time. And he issued, again, six more canons which uh, rejected Nestorius. Well, after that point, things really degenerated. Chaos, anathemas hurling back and forth, rejections. And both, both sides refused to talk. So what happens is, I mean, after all, why would you talk to someone who's, who's a declared heretic? I mean, these guys are bad guys. You don't talk to them. So pretty soon they start both writing letters to the emperor. He sort of becomes the arbiter in all of this. Now, Theodosius II is completely ignorant about the theological issues at stake here. He has no idea why this group is fighting this group at Ephesus. So, he doesn't really know what to do. And when you're in that situation, what does an emperor do? He arrests everybody and puts them in jail. <laughs> so Nestorius, put him in a slammer. Cyril, put him in the slammer. Memnon, put him in the slammer. And then the emperor decided... He said, I want eight representatives from each side to come to me and explain to me why you guys are so upset with each other. Well, 
nothing is really resolved here. Uh, but the only thing they can agree on at this point is that in October, the council is brought to a conclusion. October 431. And what happens as a result of the closing of the Council of Ephesus? First, Cyril and Memnon are released from prison and permitted to return to their bishoprics. Key thing to note here, Theodosius doesn't seem to be very uh, deeply involved with the theology going on here, the theological question. But he does have eyes, and he looks out, and he can tell that the people are overwhelmingly in support of Cyril. And so Theodosius II decides he's going to basically support Cyril and his faction. Not because of any theological considerations, but because the the majority of the people seem to be supporting Nestorius. Remember now, Nestorius is a great lobbyist. He's a great PR man. He's won the hearts of most of the bishops and all of the people. I mean, uh, Cyril. Sorry. So, Cyril and Memnon are released and sent their way to become bishops again. Secondly, a new bishop is appointed in Constantinople to replace Nestorius. And what happens to poor Nestorius? He seems to have cracked under the strain. They released him from prison, but he then withdrew to Antioch and then he went to the Arabian desert and lived in monastic solitude for a while. He did write a book entitled The Bazaar of Heraclides, which was an account of his own life while he was wandering around in the Arabian desert. And in this, of course, uh, he does not... The Bazaar of Heraclides... He does not hesitate to express his bitterness toward Cyril. And the sad thing, too, is that his, his exile was punctuated by various periods of persecution from those who supported Cyril. So even in his, his exile, if you will, he was still persecuted. The man who had been such a zealot to persecute the Arians now became the persecuted at the hands of Cyril and his group. He died sometime after 439 A.D. No one knows exactly where or when. He died in utter obscurity. What's that? I can't... No, I haven't gotten there yet. Have I? No. What year was after 439 A.D. They'd force him to leave the town. For example, he was repeatedly banished. 
uh, he would go to a monastery, perhaps, in, in Arab, and he was forced to leave that. They found out he was there, and they, and they found out who he was, and they'd force him to leave, that kind of thing. As far as I'm... Oh, oh yes. Now, he very much engaged in violence against the Aryans, put them in prison, and so forth. Well, they also engaged in, in, yes, yes. This is a day and age where that sort of thing wasn't pretty common fare. We're coming to the end here. Hang on. Uh, one little tidbit is that some folks uh, thought they had discovered the grave of Nestorius in Egypt. And so a tradition rose up that went on for some years in which when they at the graveside, of awareness where they thought Nestorius was buried, they'd take rocks and they would throw them at his grave as an act of uh, disrespect. So essentially, the council at Ephesus accomplished nothing. Except it basically, the, the majority of the bishops, all of whom already supported Cyril, concluded that Cyril's view was was in accord with Nicaea. So Ephesus accomplishes very little other than to say Cyril's views are generally in accord with uh, Nicaea. Phase four. Now, phase four is uh, an odd bit. Two years later, in 433, there was a doctrinal statement that was formulated. And both sides, now Nestorius was off in exile, but he did still have some followers. And there was, uh, it was a doctrinal statement which affirmed that Christ had two natures and that Mary was Theotokos. So to stress on two natures is was sort of a, a concession somewhat to those, uh, to the Nestorians, and to say that Mary was Theotokos was to support Cyril. So it was supposed to be a compromise doctrinal statement, because even though Nestorius had been exiled, there were still some some tensions. Cyril said, "I will sign this document to bring." the controversy to an end if you will promise to keep the anathemas of Nestorius in this new compromise document. Now the supporters of Nestorius by this time had been beaten down and they decided that for the sake of peace they would sacrifice Nestorius. And so the Nestorians sign this document which condemns Nestorius in 433 A.D. And that's phase four. So, obviously, Cyril won. He won in phase three and he won essentially in phase four. Phase four is officially after the end of it. It's after the end of it, absolutely. It's two years afterwards. This doesn't have a title or anything. No, this is my... I'm trying to make these in, in ways in which you can understand it. But phase four is officially after the council is over. But it, does, it is a compromise statement. 
one final footnote on Nestorius. In modern times, scholars discovered this book, The Bazaar of Heraclides, written by Nestorius. Scholars read it, carefully analyzed it, and probably the majority of the scholars who read it reached this conclusion. Nestorius was not a Nestorian. That is to say that scholars having read his work concluded that he was basically orthodox. Now, that is still a debated question, to be sure. People like F.F. F. Bruce, for example, think that Nestorius was a Nestorian. But there are a number of other scholars, perhaps even a majority, who think that Nestorius was not really a Nestorian in the heretical sense, that he was basically orthodox. So that's an ironic twist to all of this harem scarum, topsy-turvy kind of uh, story. Any questions? Did he? Uh, I don't think I would say so. I know that perhaps people accused him of that, but he would have denied that. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.